Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back uh, to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast. This podcast will actually be cross-posted to the special series on um, life wisdom, uh, both hosted by myself, Dr. Raj Balkaran. I have the pleasure today of speaking uh, with Dr. Ben Williams, who is Assistant Professor of Hinduism and Yoga Studies at Naropa University. Welcome, Ben, to the podcasts. Thanks, Raj. Great to be here with you. I've never before said podcasts, uh, but you are, um, uh, I guess many a podcast has been cross-posted over time, but you are, I believe, the only one, uh, the, the Life Wisdom podcast is fairly new, and you were the only one where, mm, should I have you on this one? Should I have you on that one? You know, um, but it, 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 it bespeaks um, the, the nature of your work, right? Um, so you are currently teaching at... Naropa University. Could you tell our audience a little bit about Naropa and, and how Naropa is different from perhaps most universities? Sure. Um, yeah, i am just completed my fourth year at Naropa University. And um, it's, a, it's, it is very different. It's very different than any university that I studied in, in terms of its environment, in terms of its ethos, in terms of um, kind of the university's um, philosophy of education. And it's based in, I mean, the, the kind of banner that we have that we're working with right now is, um, broadly speaking, contemplative education. Um, and we have a deep internal dialogue constantly about what exactly that means and how is that embodied across different departments. Um, and I've, I've been a part of that conversation and learned a lot in the process. But just to you know, give a little context, it's a university that was um, the brainchild or the vision of Chogyam Trungpa, uh, a Tibetan Rinpoche, who um, traveled and you know studied at Oxford, is from Tibet, is in a number of different Tibetan lineages as a teacher, but also was an incredibly prolific and and actually controversial teacher in the West and in America as well. Um, and when he had this vision. Um, he, he made some really important decisions early on, in my opinion. <clears throat> One was to separate the university from his spiritual community or from his Dharma teaching. <clears throat> and that Dharma teaching is, that organization is called Shambhala. Um, and that, that was a very good decision because it helped allow Naropa to be an independent institution that wasn't intrinsically tied to a spiritual community, uh, either financially or legally as well. And the other thing he did is he made Naropa University a dialogue. So he invited in a number of different luminaries and teachers and intellectuals and cultural creatives and artists. And this is in 1973. Uh, So it was very much of that moment, uh, the founding of Naropa University. It began as a summer institute, and the, there is these summer classes. Um, if you look at the summer catalog, it's you can you can have everything from um, Zen archery to Sanskrit and Tibetan to courses on Buddhism, a course by Ram Das on the yogas of the Bhagavad Gita, which had a thousand students enrolled. Um, courses on environmentalism, psychology, and Buddhism, um, and it was. 
it's a really kind of a powerful nexus is how I see the founding of Naropa. And it was what, what kind of the glue that brought it together was a curiosity and a kind of questioning about how can you really blend academic rigor with spiritual practice, with contemplative practice in an educational environment? And what happens when you do that? Um, and so on, on some level, it was, it was a part of a much broader trend, as I'm sure you're aware of East meets West and the reception of Buddhism and Hinduism in the West and a lot of uh, the kind of just, you know, after the, and the twilight of the counterculture in the 70s. Um, in another level, though, it was there was something really kind of novel, I think, about the emergence of Naropa and the original culture of it. And um, it's continued to flourish. Another really important piece worth mentioning, since we're going back to the roots, is um, some of the kind of sustaining collaborators of Trungpa, um, including Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman, who are both extraordinarily important poets in, in the beat poet tradition. Um, Ginsberg and Waldman um, helped co-founded the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, as it came to be called. And it's a school of poetics. Uh, it's, a, it's a graduate program in, um, in studying writing. And it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a very distinctive program in any institution. And it has this deep kind of connection to the history of poetry in America. And they had summer... Uh, they had these like summer sessions um, through the through the school, and those those sessions have attracted so many writers, um, so many different uh, interesting people. I mean, I could I could name a few, but it's it's really been it's had a, an amazing life, and and trained a lot of different writers, and just been like a really creative and powerful space. So I really see that as that kind of dimension of our school as a, a kind of a unique adornment of our broader university um, and I've actually kind of gotten interested in some of that history as well. You know, I know uh, very little about the history of Naropa, uh, certainly much more now um, post you explaining it to me. Um, what I do know is that in many different spaces, many different ways, I'm constantly thinking about um, the study of religion versus the practice of religion experiential learning, embodied learning, parampara learning versus scholarship and what is appropriate where and when and and to what extent does one inform the other. So uh, um, I understand now why no less than uh, three individuals have recommended that I either have you on the podcast or just uh, chat with you. It sounds like um, it sounds like we uh, travel in similar nebulous but interesting spaces. Um uh, in, speaking of the founding of things, the founding of Naropa and the development of Naropa, from what I understand, uh, you've been instrumental in the founding of a new development pertaining to uh, yoga studies in Naropa. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, so I, I kind of entered into a stream when I, when I took the position of a yoga studies program, which did already exist. It was a bachelor's in yoga studies, and it was about 10 years old. And it emanated out of a, out of an area of Naropa's, um, 
academic structure called traditional Eastern arts. And so we, we, for many years, we've had classes on Hatha yoga or modern posture yoga. And then those classes often had accompany classes on the history and philosophy of yoga. And um, my colleague, Nataraja Kalio, um, took that momentum and developed it into a BA degree. And it was actually the first BA in yoga studies in America. So it's kind of an, an initial, uh, a compelling kind of piece in the history of yoga studies itself. And when I was hired, I was hired to teach classes in that department to teach undergrads. But I was also hired to develop a new program, which is a master's in yoga studies. And it was kind of a dream that the department had had for a while. We have a long history of studying Sanskrit uh, at the university, um, a, a, deep, a depth of Buddhist studies within our religious studies department, but we've also, um, it's a pretty broad religious studies department. And so under the umbrella of religious studies, I was tasked to help create a master's in yoga studies, um, which was exciting um, as a kind of something to really uh, jump into and dive into. Um, and so we launched the program last fall. It's a low res- residency program, which means that it can be taken from anywhere in the world, but it has two residential retreats. Um, part of the intention behind that was to really open up the program to a broader audience and not require that people move to Boulder, Colorado in order to take the program, which can be difficult and prohibitive financially <laughs> and otherwise. Um, and and the timing was pretty good for that decision because we launched during the time of COVID. So, um, yeah. So it's a it's a brand new program. I'd be happy to speak more about it and and what you know what we're developing within it. But it's been very exciting to teach in it um, yeah, and to work with sounds, the initial cohort. Yeah, sounds exciting. So <laughs> one of the people who have uh, suggested I connect with you a couple of times is the lovely uh, uh, Hamsa, Doctor Hamsa Staten at mm. Gill, and I, I joke with him that we it it feels to me like we went to grad school together or something, but we have these. Uh, impactful conversations, you know, and, uh, in in the periphery of a conference in a hotel lobby, you know, um, um, uh, literally at an airport, um, um, on a bus, uh, uh, <laughs> now online every now and then. Um, but in addition to to, to Hamsa, um, uh, a young Jedi by the name <laughs> by the name of Dustin Holmes has sauntered into my school of Indian wisdom, and apparently he is among um, the first cohort of your uh, masters in yoga studies. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's correct. And yeah. so there's so much there, right? Like there's so much there to dig into. Um. The, the bigger question for me is where Naropa fits and where the program fits with respect to this, 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 this spectrum of theory and practice. So, you know, when teaching, for example, grad students, obviously you're going to lead typically at the academy with, with you know, critical theory method. Yes, in teaching continuing studies, it is overall an edict paradigm, but mm-hmm. certainly uh, there's more soulful discourse because people are there because they want to be for a reason. And when you're studying the humanities for a reason, yeah. it's related to your life in some way. And you have spaces like the OCHS, definitely an etic paradigm, a scholarly paradigm, but then um, enriched by many people who come there as practitioners and have lots to share about their practices. Yeah. And so I decided to found this, this online school to kind of 
and that's what I've been doing online for about five years and really probably the last 12 years in Toronto, which is talk about the scholarly piece. In my case, bring in the, the storytelling because, you know, Puranas are, I'm passionate about that, mm-hmm. but also bring in the Parampara piece. Mm. Uh, and I, it's sort of this je ne sais quoi that took me uh, some time to brand and folks, it's like, you know, soy milk, you know, you love it or, you know, it's not for you. It's fine. <laughs> and, and so I'm <laughs> wondering, <laughs> I'm really wondering for a number of reasons uh, as a scholar of religion, as someone uh, dabbling in all kinds of online spaces, you know, what is the paradigm at Naropa or at the, the yoga studies program? Is it, for practitioners is it you know i don't want to uh, these questions are generative right yeah. uh, what what is what is the what is the interplay between the practicing life and scholarship in such programs at europa well it's definitely for practitioners um but it's for practitioners who um, might be aspiring to become practitioner scholars um or scholar practitioners. I never know which word to put first. <laughs> um, it might be consequential. Um, so, yes, we we include practice. Uh, we can sp- I can speak more about that and how parampara uh, or lineage and tradition plays in. Um, but the the one of the ways I t- articulate it is what we want to do is we want a the we want to have a real training, a graduate level training in the field of yoga studies. That means um, an, really a deep training and immersion in the best scholarship in yoga studies and, and an ability to have a certain kind of literacy around yoga, not only in terms of its roots development, many lineages and instantiations within South Asia, but, but also in terms of the inception of modern postural yoga within the colonial period, globalization, the reception history, looking at um, yoga in transit, transcultural flows, um, and like to you know, there's the questions of continuities and discontinuities. Uh, asking those questions all with a kind of honesty and and in a certain way deference to scholars who have dedicated years studying these things. Um, and within uh, a theoretical and methodological framework and sensitivity of religious studies. So studying, even though yoga is not exclusively associated with one religion, it's been embodied as a practice and theory within so many different religious lineages. Um, the practice piece is, is really looking in the master's program, is, is not so much about we're doing postural yoga. It's not a, an extension of a teacher training in any way. It's really looking at uh, the practice of yogic forms of meditation. And for much of, as you know, pre-modern uh, history of yoga has been primarily a, a more meditative discipline. Although Hatha yoga really brings in these body-based elements that sets the kind of possibility cloud for modern postural yoga to emerge. Um, and tantric traditions include the body in a much more powerful way in their yogic technologies. Nonetheless, um, the breath, the mind, and consciousness are really at the heart of this practice. And so we, we explore these practices with this kind of dual awareness of contextualizing them historically, but also engaging them and practicing them in the classroom. I mean, there's, med- there's two meditation practicums. 
you get meditation homework. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a process of engaging it as an as an internal unfolding, and more importantly, you as a yogi, what it means to be a yogi, and all the kind of multifarious possibility of that, right, is included in this in this process of study, and that means including uh, questions of how students are making meaning, how students are are understanding their own lives in relationship to these teachings. And, um, but also, you know, in the spirit of something like Cornell West, you know, like in certain kind of critical pedagogy, it's also about unsettling and students and maybe unearthing some assumptions they might have about yoga and, and really um, putting them into some uh, new kind of areas of consideration that, that might actually be difficult to digest. That seems to me that two two good friends, two two good ped- pedagogical pals in teaching religion are defamiliarizing and uh, refamiliarizing, mm. and it appears perhaps that might more so be the case in your particular uh, niche of education. Mm. Mm. Um. <laughs> um how how did you arrive at this? Did you does Naropa appeal to you because uh, of a practice life? Uh, uh, is it related to your scholarship in some way? Tell us more about your own journey coming to this. Yeah, sure. Um, I've been a practitioner. I was a practitioner first, and then decided to, you know, study this in earnest and do a PhD and, and pursue this professional path. Um, so at, at base, uh, at my at my heart, I'm a practitioner. Um, of Indian traditions of meditation uh, within a particular lineage. And when I decided to <clears throat> study uh, these things, um, my training in, in the Western academic context uh, really did not include anything, any of the practitioner side. In fact, I remember talking to one of my undergrad professors and, and he asked me about it because he had some sense that my interests were deeper than just, you know, purely academic. <laughs> You were a musician, not just there for the music theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's a beautiful way of saying it. And then, and then I was kind of, I became shy when he asked me because in the, you know, in the area of religious studies, sometimes this isn't really a part of our, our study, the culture of our study so much. He's outing you as a pagan. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I became shy and he's like, well, sometimes it's good to keep your cards behind your back, you know? And I like that metaphor. And I kind of followed it, to be honest. I, I kept my cards behind my back. I continued to engage with my spiritual communities, my friends. Uh, I had a very rich life outside of being a grad student. And that was nourishing. So I didn't feel like defragmented, or you know, <laughs> which often happens to some scholars when they, when they enter in this environment, especially if you conflate your social life with your colleagues, academic colleagues. So I, I was able to, to really continued to have a meaningful spiritual life. But when I came to Naropa, it was interesting because I was asked to do both at the same time. And I'd never, I'd never really done that. I was being asked to show up um, in terms of my own um, deeper experience as a practitioner. That was suddenly important in the classroom. Um, and in fact, the students are kind of calling for it in a certain way and deeply curious about it. So to be honest, Raj, like, 
it was a little awkward at first. I, I was, I, I, I kind of leaning on the laurels of my academic training and my pure intellectual passion and just warming up slowly to sharing my practitioner side, you know? There is this um, both conceit and misconception mm. that being a musician occludes you from being a good music theor- theoretician, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Um, and not not all theorists uh, need, you know, need to have rhythm and pitch, <laughs> but certainly the ones who do. I mean, not all musicians have any idea how to read sheet music or know yeah. a chord progression, or, or they may know intuitively how to create one, but may not be versed in the language of, you know, uh, music in that sense. Not all musicians need to know music theory and not all music theorists or music historians, even better, mm-hmm. need to have any rhythm. Right, right. But I assure you that for um, those among us who can do both, they're mutually, um, they're mutually reinforcing and mutually um, yeah. enriching, provided one understands, are you here to dance or are you here to like draw out chords on a piece of paper? They're different, yeah. <laughs> right? They're different paradigms. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, um, Agehananda Bharati is an anthropologist and he wrote on uh, Hindu tantric traditions. He was a Viennese intellectual and he was also a Swami for many years. And uh, he wrote the Okra Robe, a story about his life. He walked the breadth of India. He taught at Naropa in the first two summers. It's a really interesting thing. And he argues that the Edic and the Emic should not be brought together. They cannot be synthesized. He re- He's somebody, I think, who really suspended um, his own knowledge and, and embodied experience as a sannyasin to teach the discipline of the anthropological study of religion. And I don't know if I agree with him, you know, like I, I appreciate the spirit of what he does and he pushes back on a lot of like the, what appeared at Naropa at that time. He's a really refreshing voice and he's known for like, like enjoying being controversial, <laughs> but um, he, he questions how much they can come together. When you're within one paradigm, can you at that same time, um, have the other paradigm active, you know, and be alive. Um, and I, I think it's possible, and I think it's actually really compelling to explore it. But I also appreciate his his viveka, you know, his discernment, and trying to protect the integrity of each. It seems to me that um, <clears throat> so one thing I find coming out of my mouth every now and then is that. Um, you know, the intellectual paradigm and the spiritual paradigm, or to crudely simplify the inner and the outer worlds, yeah? yeah. Um, they should have a wonderful um, uh, division of labor, mm. right? Um, uh, our, uh, our inner inclinations or intuitions or insights um, should not be the basis of trumping what physical evidence shows us. Yeah, yeah. And... By the same token, um, the, it, 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 empiricism needs to understand that it is bound by the physical world. And there's no way to demonstrate, certainly not by our experiences, mm. that we are just piles of flesh, bags of water, you know, uh, just collections of atoms. There's so much more going on there, meat, right? Meat I, th- I think it meat makes robots. sense. What's that? Meet Just meat robots or... Warm, warm, wet. <laughs> yeah, some meatier than others, apparently. Um, but <laughs> uh, what I mean to say is that this is the issue. Like when you're doing scholarship, right? 
if you're talking about the history of South Asia or Indian religion, you're going to present it in a sensible way that the evidence um, pertains to. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yes. The evidence doesn't indicate that the Puranas have been around since the beginning of time. Yeah. There's a point in history where they emerged. Now, whether or not they're speaking about an inner reality or truths that are timeless, that's a very different question. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, in our field anyways, it's easy to be good at the critical thinking. And for some, it's easy to be good at the spiritual experience. But I think what what, what the figure you're, you're, you're talking about, you're invoking, is referring to is that, you know, it's, it's, it's one or the other, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you do the both sloppily. But at the same time, we can't pretend like we're bifurcated beings. You know, we can't pretend like these texts and these rituals aren't connected to a deeper and profound inner life. Yeah. Right. And so it's tricky. I mean, it's so tricky. The only reason I founded the School of Indian Wisdom is because there is no other space to do what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Right? right, maybe Naropa. Apparently, uh, yeah, well, we, we have to have you come on as guest faculty. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, um, uh, time will tell. Time will tell. I had to mention Dustin because apparently he listens to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, and mm. he's been saying that I should meet you. And from last I heard, he's enjoying the programming at the school as well. So mm-hmm. there you go. Nice. Um. Can you say a bit about your scholarship? What was your dissertation on? How did you get into that line of study? Sure. Well, I had a long-standing interest in some of the Shaiva traditions that flourished in Kashmir, um, and that that was my main area of focus. But when I started studying Sanskrit, I also just uh, fell in love with the language and started reading everything. And, and at an early point, I wanted to work on Abhinavagupta, this this figure who is. Uh, it's really compelling in a number of ways, partly because of his, his, um, his synthesis of many different tantric lineages within the Shaiva tantric tradition and the Shakta tantric tradition. Um, it's, he wrote this magnus, magnum opus called the Tantra Loka, which is this great compendium on, this, on many different layers of earlier tantric revelation. And he he kind of matches that with being a really important and influential figure in the history of Indian literary theory um, and dramaturgy. And then he has, he also just on the side happens to be a really um, one of the sharpest philosophers in Indian history as well. <laughs> and uh, the way Alexis Anderson says it beautifully, it's, it almost seems like he took a degree in Buddhist philosophy, you know, like he, 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 when he studies the Buddhist, he does it so deeply, and he, he you know, and so um, a compelling figure on on in many ways. I think for what he embodies, I was really drawn to what is the relationship between these sensitivities and how do they culminate within a, a single being. And so when I started studying him, I realized I really needed to study his context and the traditions that he studied. And so I the. I really, my dissertation is about him, but it's about medieval Kashmir and it's about the history of Tantra all at the same time, because those things were absolutely essential to know, to appreciate his moves, what he's doing, the import of his work. I focus on how he writes about himself, his autobiographical passages, how he represents himself as a cosmopolitan siddha, as the word that I kind of landed on. (laughs) And, um, and what's the logic of that self-representation and that self-awareness? What's his religious self-consciousness? Um, <clears throat> but what 
what that meant was that I had to really um, read uh, a lot of different genres. And so it really stepped up my Sanskrit game. I had, you know, I read a lot of Shastra and technical, you know, debate texts. I read a lot of Buddhist philosophy. I read a lot of literary theory with some of my teachers, Alankara Shastra. And then I, I had to study tantric literature as well. I focus more on the tantric materials in my scholarship, but I've continued to read those other sources as well. So he's been a, <clears throat> you know, this, this intellectual master and spiritual teacher from the 10th to 11th century has been an incredible influence on my life, you know, and um, an exemplar for me personally. <laughs> Certainly an inspiring figure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 um it's um it's a seductive line of thought that you know pre-moderns couldn't think you know the critical thinking wasn't there you know they they believed in things like you know uh, the koshas <laughs> the sukshma shriyara they just you know they just didn't have the faculty of reason you read some of this stuff and you're like wow yeah. somebody said something very insightful to me one of my teachers because mm-hmm. I was really debating whether or not um well I was uh, debating whether to stay in the world formally or not. Uh, some time ago, I was also debating whether or not to pursue um, uh, a degree in, in Indian religion and Sanskrit narrative, ultimately. And he said to me, you do realize if Shankaracharya were alive today, he would definitely have a PhD from some top-notch university. Right. 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 <laughs> right. <laughs> so it really reframes it for you. I'm like, yeah, I guess he would. <laughs> I love that reframing. That's great. Yeah. No. yeah so do I. Um <laughs> <laughs> are you currently uh are you currently working on a book project uh i am actually i mean i i have a few different um projects that i'm working on that are just in the early stages um a couple of translation projects um and i was going i would think there's my dissertation is going to take the shape of a book and i think it may be a more general book actually um so it'll have a lot of academic research behind it but what I've been envisioning, and I recently received an invitation to do this, um, is really a book that kind of introduces Abhinav Gupta to the world and synthesizes, um, you know, includes my own primary research, um, but synthesizes a lot of the secondary scholarship because there's a huge chasm between the scholarship on Abhinav Gupta and the popular interest. There's been a kind of research of popular interest and within different, you know, uh, spiritual lineages, um, you know, modern Hindu-based lineages, there's been a, a very deep and sincere interest. But there's not much materials that are accessible on on him. And so I that's the kind of book that I'm, I'm beginning to work on, actually. Yeah. You strike me as well-suited to serve as such a bridge, actually. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, listen, I just you know, one of my one of my vices is just uh, being honest. So I just I call it as I see it. <laughs> Maybe not as directly on podcasts as in my personal life, but that's a whole other question. Speaking of being honest, I'm going to have to use that cosmopolitan siddha at some point. Um, um, the phrase in the back of my brain was um, uh, urban sadhu. I'll have to use okay. <laughs> cosmopolitan siddha. Works even better. I may put it on my business card. Anyhow. Um, marketing. <laughs> 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 Could you? <laughs> 
could you tell us a little bit about your path or your practice, your lineage, your teachers, if you're comfortable? Um, yeah, I, I, I met a teacher when I was very young. Um, and I, it was through somebody that my mother married. And so it kind of came into my family. Um, my stepbrother was named by that teacher's guru in that lineage. And so I, I was kind of, it was through the auspices of just my, my growing up life. I didn't seek it out. Um, and it was really, it found you, it found me. Yeah. It kind of, you know, like entered my life like a comet or something. And, um, <laughs> must, must be a tantric guru there. It's a comet. I get I, it. I, I get yeah, it. It's definitely like a, a potent, you know, Shakti lineage, a lot of Shakti in this lineage. And <clears throat> when I was 19 or 20, I, I had a number of, I kind of had, to be honest, I kind of had a dark night at the soul, something equivalent to that. And on the other end of it, I found myself doing retreats and practicing in this community. It was just like a, it kind of came back and really in, a, in this fullness. And then about five years later, I recognized that teacher as my guru and served the community. But within the community, there's many swamis. And what was so beautiful is the, the teacher has, has a lot of disciples. So I didn't have much personal access, but I did have more access to the to the community of swamis and the community of just elders. And as a, someone in their young 20s growing up in that community and offering seva, there was, a, there was an extraordinary process of mentorship. And this is, I think, part of the beauty of parampara, our tradition, is that there was, there was just so much, um, in, so much that they were invested in my own inner development. And nurturance. nurturance, yeah, and then exemplars, you know, like the what they were embodying. I was learning from being with them and from watching how they lived, you know, how how wisdom was alive in their lives. I was I was digging their jams musically, you know, <laughs> how they were imp- improvising with life so beautifully. I love improv music too, and I think that's a, another nice metaphor for this. And the practices and, and the path were centered on practices of mantra, um, practices of um, nama sankirtana, um, and practices of meditation. Um, but also uh, devotion to the guru was really at the heart of it. And another thing that's beautiful about the lineage is that it has many other uh masters and saints and siddhas in its broader uh its broader kind of uh galaxy right and so there's this deep reverence for a lot of the poet saints of india you know and in almost a relationship with them Nyaneshwar maharaj uh really became a poet saint that i kind of fell in love with um when i start i read his commentary on the bhagavad-gita the gyaneshwari I traveled to India and went to his Mahasamadhi shrine, and there was this really powerful recognition of of a deep connection to this amazing being. Um, and so that's this amazing, this additional thing is just this kind of uh, this broader uh, parampara as it kind of fans outwards, backwards to include all of these great beings, and just be, having the teachings uh, and the poems and you know the songs and the presence of those beings in one's life uh, is, is like one of the most, this like my, that's my source of strength, you know, and 
and that's my source of sanity. It's mm, your bedrock in this in these tumultuous times, especially. Yeah, yeah. I imagine this is this is why I'm typically so frenetic. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no, you've definitely you're, you've 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 settled since the beginning of the call. It's oh, great. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, you know I tend to put people to sleep, so that's good. Um, <laughs> you said something in passing um, that I would like to drill down on a little bit because it's it's of particular relevance to Life Wisdom Podcast. It's something that has been said before, and it's an idea that I play with a lot, this idea that wisdom lives, wisdom's alive. Mm-hmm. Say more about that. What does that mean to you? Great question. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> um, the embodiment of uh, deep wisdom I, I think of one particular devotee who's a, a mentor and friend of mine and uh, being in his, in his space, I would go visit him. He was a paraplegic and, um, but he was a, a Harvard grad, really an amazing intellect. One of the best storytellers I've ever, ever met in my life. And he would tell stories of like the, the interactions with the gurus and, and the way wisdom lived in him was when he when he said something he meant it you know and and he meant it based on who he was not some kind of not some kind of teaching that one should adopt he he was what he was talking about so when he says something like the perennial teaching of our lineage is to welcome everyone with respect and love he's been doing that <laughs> for 30 years with such an open heart and with so much enthusiasm, curiosity about other beings and his enthusiasm, curiosity in you make you blossom, you know, and it's real. It's not, he's not playing a part, you know, he's, he's not trying to get something out of the relationship. He's really just welcoming you fully. He's embodying the teachings. Embodying the teachings. Yeah. And there's a kind of warmth in his presence that I would feel like, actually feel my body becoming warm <laughs> it wasn't the room temperature you know there's there's like yeah, the, the ancients call that shakti but that's a whole different yeah, story there's like a warm solar energy that <laughs> I, was, I would go i would go and bath i would like feel like i was like getting an inner suntan you know what I mean? <laughs> just being in his presence and so that that just comes to mind you know this um <laughs> yeah we were talking about the other day, I can't remember if it was at, at an OCHS tutorial or one for the school. Um, uh, oh, no, it must have been OCHS because we were talking about the Bhagavad Gita. I'm currently tutoring a course on the Bhagavad Gita. Um, um, Arjun at the outset, obviously he's upset. And he's like, you know, um, really, I'd, I'd just rather... You know, I'd rather just, I'd, 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 you know, I've watched the right YouTube videos. Just give me a begging ball. I know what's right. <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know, I heard a couple of public lectures from some scholar practitioner at Naropa, and I know this is the right thing. Give me a begging ball. Um, and I'm not, I'm, you know, I know better than to eat yeah. the blood, the, the food smeared with my guru's blood. When is Krishna saying, Krishna's like, oh yeah, you know, you're a parrot. You know, you talk, you talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. What are you belly aching about? You think you're so wise, huh? Yeah. You're not wise. Yeah. It's not embodied because you're grieving. Right. Uh, as you were talking, the, that sort of vignette came to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, 
I saw a beautiful talk by Emily Hudson about uh, the grief of Arjuna and, and the idea of it being a moral paradox. And she says, when you look at it in the deeper uh, context of the Mahabharata, it's not so much a moral paradox because you see that he's not seeing correctly. There's a lack of seeing things as they are. When you know the deeper story, you see that his vision is blurry, right? He's the one who himself was counseling Yudhishthira to say, we have to go to war, <laughs> right? Like, so when you, when you have this deeper context, it's interesting to see. And then, of course, chapter 11, right? The, the Vishwarupa, that arguably is, is when it's like, okay, now it's real, you know? Like, it, there's, it's a, such an interesting moment in the text, you know? Yeah, put it back, put it back. I can't yeah, take this. Exactly. Like, I just, yeah. just you, you just got too real for me, man. I just, I, I can't take this. It's um, never, what's really cool about the yeah, it reminds me of this quote: "It's never enough until it's too much," or something. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Hudson's um, quite enjoy her work. She's submitted a paper. There's a a, a, a volume on Sanskrit narrative mm. we're putting together, mm. and so I get to read her work, which is fantastic. Well, her book, um, book "Disorienting Dharma: The Poetics of Suffering in the Mahabharata." Mm. I deeply recommend to anyone. I love that book. Really love, love to give a shout out to that book and to that scholarship. I should probably have her on the podcast. Typically we have books within the last few years or so. Mm. Well, we make exceptions every now and again. Mm. Um, one thing, uh, it's so interesting about that um, cosmic form scene when Arjuna is kind of like, I can't take it anymore. Mm. Um, Arjuna addresses Krishna in the, in the epithet Achuta. Mm, yeah. And he does this only three times mm. in the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. The very first time he addresses him, the very last time he addresses him, uh-huh. and then in this moment. So there's this really profound sort of frame about being upstanding, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. 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 I um, like that. No, that's beautiful. So is there anything else that you wanted to tell us about the program or who might be uh, who who might be interested in it, or how do they go about applying? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah well, we on the Naropa website for the program, we have and you know apply here toggle, which maybe you can put in the show notes. <laughs> um, but the, that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a pretty straightforward process. We're still accepting applications for fall twenty twenty one. In terms of the audience of the program and even the first cohort. We have, we have a really amazing mix of different types of students. We have students who um, are yoga studio owners who are, have been doing teacher trainings for many years and really want to deepen this and allow it to enrich their already existing practice and, in some cases, business. Um, we have students who are, have done undergrads in religious studies who are really interested in deepening their study of Sanskrit and learning how to translate texts, who have a real interest to go on to PhD programs. We see this program as a real a vehicle for that process, um, and be it in Indian religions or in yogic studies. Um, and then we have some students who are actually non-traditional students who are just, who love yoga and have this deeper curiosity about you know, they've maybe through the, the postural practice, they've had incredible transformations and they just really want to learn more about the tradition. There's this deep longing to learn. Um, and they're kind of, see, you know, curious about how that might manifest in their lives, but there's some kind of trust or interest that, and or magnetic pull that they want to do this. I think across all of them, 
there's a there's a kind of a consonance or a consilience in just the appreciation for being in a program where practice is at the heart of the program. Um, you know, meditation is kind of the missing heart of yoga, and so that's uh, that's kind of what we're trying to recover. You have all these Buddhist lineages that so many different meditation, you know, retreats and things you can do, and it's you know even though Patanjali is like the patron saint of modern Pashto yoga, um, that kind of dimension of practice is in mind training and cultivation is almost impossible to find in a practitioner context. And it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's actually kind of surprising, right? <laughs> given how much is service surprising. is given to Patanjali, that there's no, no deep training in the system that he taught, you know, deep inner training. And so that's the well, one foundation thing that, of our meditation curriculum. Uh, one thing that I'm noticing, I shouldn't be surprised, I noticed the same about 10 years ago in Toronto when I did it in public. I noticed that tons of students that come attracted to these courses that I teach on Indian myth mm-hmm. or uh, really, you know, a number of topics um, are from the yoga community, the yoga circuit, or they're, they, they're, they're, they own studios or they're serious practitioners and they're looking for some kind of enrichment. So it's not surprising that um, it's, it's perhaps surprising that this is the way it is, but it doesn't surprise me currently that there aren't, um, there, it's not very easy apparently for uh, a serious yoga practitioner to derive the enrichment and the learning they're looking for. Yeah. Um, right, right. So yeah. I understand yeah. why that would be of appeal. Um, in terms of this vision of contemplative education that is at the heart of Naropa, would you say that that is mm, something reserved for certain spaces or to be reserved for certain spaces, hybrid spaces perhaps, such as Naropa? Would you say that's something that can be grafted uh, onto the soil of very other campuses like could you comment on uh the applicability of that uh, uh approach or relevance across the humanities elsewhere there's a really interesting field that i've been tracking a little in some of the naropa faculty that i've worked with and, and mentored under including <clears throat> judah simmer brown are really um, deeply involved in it and it's called contemplative studies and it, it involves you know it's tied to the mind life institute it's tied to uh, there's a huge program at Brown University. Uh, UVA has a huge center in contemplative studies. <clears throat> and it's really this interesting field because it includes cognitive scientists, uh, social psychologists, uh, scholars of religion and religious studies, and um, practitioners. And, and it involves people like the Dalai Lama, <laughs> you know? And, and so there's a, a look at mind science. There's a look at like, there's Richie Davis out of University of Wisconsin as well as doing all this research on meditation. And it's a part of the broader mindfulness movement, of course. That mindfulness movement in contemplative studies is predominantly focused upon um, Buddhist meditative forms that it's translating into different environments. And of course, there's John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based, you know, stress reduction and in working with chronic pain. So there's all of these applications that are starting to happen. They're starting to uh, mindfulness as a practice is starting to be included in wellness centers and universities and, and 
secondary schools, and there's research on that. So what what it, what it doesn't really have, and this is a critique of it potentially, is parampara. And what it often doesn't have is a deep historical engagement with the traditions and practices under consideration. And um, it's that's not necessarily a problem. It's a part of a translation. It's a, definitely a, a hybrid situation, to use the word that you brought up. Um, but Thomas Coburn, who is a scholar of Hinduism, you're probably familiar with, wrote on the David Mahatmya. Oh. Ever so slightly considering between he and I and maybe, I don't know, you count on one hand who's seriously paid attention to the foundational text of Shaktism in the Hindu world in the last 50 years. But yes, okay. Thomas Gopher. So, I don't know if you know this, but he was a president of Naropa for a number of years. And um, he became deeply interested in his later life about contemplative education and he's made some contributions to it. And one of the points that he makes is like, well, what is the role of theistic traditions within contemplative education? And if you look at, you know, non-Buddhist traditions, you have a lot of theistic traditions. And, and how does that play a part? Um, another area that that's related to is um, comparative theology. And one of my advisors is Francis Clooney. Uh, and that's another place where, uh, there's a kind of, I think, a potential kinship, you know. Uh, okay, I have to say, I of Hindu theology, for example. But go ahead. Yeah, we had I interviewed Frank Clooney for this podcast yesterday. Oh wow, that's so lovely. Oh. Yeah, that's great. It's all about the parampara, apparently. Uh, that, yeah, that is. He is an essential part of my parampara. I did a general exam on Hindu theologies, and and he's one of one of the most influential mentors I've had. So yeah, yeah. We talked about his uh, well many things, but the the um, you know the, the scholar practitioner and the extent to which uh, one's own insights and practices come to bear on their scholarship and a very fascinating conversation. Wow. It's part of the ten uh, podcasts um, that comprise this uh, Life Wisdom podcast series. The uh, mandate is to do 10 and see if there's an interest. If people are interested in life wisdom, <laughs> then we will continue. And if not, then I'll just continue pontificating to my students in private. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's <laughs> I look forward to hearing that episode. I really do, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So anything else you wanted to share about Naropa? Um Life wisdom, the meaning of existence, or <laughs> your own scho- your own scholarship. We have to have you on the we have to have you on the on the new books in Indian religions podcast when your book is up. By the oh, way, that would be great. Thank you. Um, yes, for sure. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we close for today? Yeah, I would just say that um, I, I feel very lucky to to be at Naropa in many ways. Um, uh, the more I learn about the history, especially the more I find it a really compelling educational experiment in the history of the American landscape. <laughs> and um, and I, I think that there's a kind of unique countercultural lineage. It's a non-lineage lineage, a non-linear lineage. And uh, it's it continues on in spirit in many different ways. And one of the signatures of that spirit is a kind of a deep openness to non-Western traditions. Um, and that, that openness has unfolded through the rhythm of friendships. Um, we have so many 
you know, we had the Karmapa come to our campus twice and teach both Karmapas <laughs> in both incarnations, you know, so we've, we've had, um, we just have, we've had such, a, we've had Reb Zalman as a wisdom chair for many years, a professor of Jewish mysticism from Temple. Um, it's a place where <clears throat> there's just been a, a sustained interest in openness and dialogue in, in relationship with wisdom traditions, uh, with global wisdom traditions. And, um, and yet not, it's not just a religious institution. It's, it's actually a humanistic institution. And I think that that's just such a powerful combination and you see a different kind of formation that's possible in that context, both for undergrads and graduate students. And I would say for faculty too. <laughs> and so I, it's been a real blessing to be honest. That's beautiful. Thank you for speaking with me today on, um, I guess, the podcasts. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, Raj. It's great to get to know you and meet you and, and to riff with you. Indeed, uh, with any luck, um, both Hamsa and Dustin are satisfied that we finally got to meet. Um, yeah, it may yeah. well be our last conversation because it was so you know difficult and abrasive for the two of us to get on. I, I kid, <laughs> I kid, obviously I kid. Um, <laughs> for those of you, for those of you listening out in the timeless time of podcast land, um, we've been speaking with Dr. Ben Williams, who was part of the faculty at Naropa University. A really intriguing uh, space that integrates uh, scholarship and the contemplative life. Uh, a link to his new uh, master's in yoga studies will be included in the podcast as well as a link to his bio until next time stay safe stay sane and keep contemplating the intersection of intellectual and spiritual selves take care <laughs>